September of 2003, General Wesley Clark did an interview. And in this interview, he acknowledged a plan, a secretive plan from our government, the Bush administration at the time, directed or dictated by Donald Rumsfeld with George Bush's tacit approval, I would imagine, of uh, seven countries that they would be toppling within the next five years. And it's almost 20 years since he told that story. And I thought it would be informative for those that haven't heard it uh, to not just play it for you, but actually document all of the ways in which they followed through with that plot, those plans. Enjoy. One of the generals called me and he said, sir, you got to come in. You got to come in and talk to me a second. I said, well, you're too busy. He said, no, no. He says, we've made the decision. We're going to war with Iraq. This was on or about the 20th of September. I said, we're going to war with Iraq. Why? He said, I don't know. <laughs> he said, I guess they don't know what else to do. So uh, I said, well, did they find some information collect connecting Saddam to Al-Qaeda? He said, no, no. He says, there's nothing new that way. They just made the decision to go to war with Iraq. He said, I guess it's like we don't know what to do about terrorists, but we've got a good military and we can take down governments. And um, he said, I guess if, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem has to look like a nail. So I came back to see him a few weeks later. And by that time, we were bombing in Afghanistan. I said, are we still going to war with Iraq? And he said, oh, it's worse than that. He said, he reached over on his desk. He picked up a piece of paper. And he said, I just, he said, I just got this down from upstairs, meaning the Secretary of Defense's office today. And he said, this is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. I said, is it classified? He said, yes, sir. I said, <laughs> I said, well, don't show it to me. And I saw him a year or so ago, and I said, you remember that? He said, sir, I didn't show you that memo. I didn't show it to you. Uh, I'm sorry, what did you say his name was? <laughs> I'm not going to give you his name. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? Woo boy. What'd you think about that, folks? What you think about that? Um, so yeah, that was that was keeping in mind. At the time, Wesley Clark was actually running for president. I know people probably had forgotten that, but he was running for president under the Democrat ticket. I believe John Kerry uh, went on to win that nomination. And uh, and Wesley Clark actually endorsed him, if I recall correctly. But during his campaign, he uh, he got real loose with the truth, didn't he? I was like, what the hell is this guy doing? Absolutely crazy. So let's uh, let's go through the list, the order, if you will, and let's prove out whether or not he was talking out of his ass. So he says that first Iraq, which obviously at the time we were already invading them when he's telling this story. So that one was provable. Uh, that was 2003 when he's telling the story. And he says the next up would be Syria. Now, I, I don't know for sure if these were in order, but the fact that he listed them in order means perhaps. I mean, I don't know why he would. They're not alphabetical or anything. Maybe you just rattled them off based off of his recollection. Uh, but Syria, 
Syria was the next one. And I don't need to tell you guys, but for those that are unaware, there has been a civil war in Syria for many, many years as uh, Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, has been told that he has to go repeatedly. So let's go through the history with, of that real quick. This one I'm using Wikipedia just because I thought it was a good summary. It says the American-led intervention in the Syrian civil war refers to the American-led support of Syrian rebels and the Syrian Democrat forces, or Democratic forces, the SDF, during the course of the Syrian civil war, including Operation Inherent Resolve, the active military operation led by the United States and involving the militaries of the UK, France, Jordan, Turkey, Canada, Australia, and others against the Islamic State and Al-Nusra Front since 2014. Beginning in 2017-18, the US and its partners have also targeted the Syrian government and its allies via airstrikes and aircraft shootdowns, mainly in defense of either the SDF or the revolutionary commando army opposition group based in Al-Tamf. Shortly after the civil war broke out in 2011, the U.S. initially supplied the rebels of the Free Syrian Army with non-lethal aid, e.g. food rations and pickup trucks, but quickly began providing training, money, and intelligence to selected Syrian rebel commanders. What does that remind you of? Ukraine, maybe? Hmm, interesting. And all of these other nations I'm about to tell you about, uh, at least two U.S. programs attempted to assist the Syrian rebels, including a 2014 Pentagon program that planned to train and equip 15,000 rebels to fight the IS, that's the Islamic State, which was canceled in 2015 after spending $500 million and producing only a few dozen fighters. Great money well spent. A simultaneous $1 billion covert program called Timber Sycamore, which Scott Horton has informed us all about in depth with his great books, uh, conducted by the CIA, aimed at fighting Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, was more successful but was decimated by Russian bombing and canceled in mid-2017 by the Trump administration. I thought that was an interesting note too, because in my humble opinion, when... Vladimir Putin decided to bomb and destroy or plot to topple Bashar al-Assad, keeping in mind that Syria and Assad is one of the few allies to Russia that exists within the Middle East. Well, I think that the deep state, if you will, set their sights on Vladimir Putin, and not coincidentally, we are now in a proxy war against him in Ukraine. Worth noting, don't you think? On December 19th, President Trump unilaterally, this is uh, 2018, President Trump unilaterally ordered the withdrawal of 2,000 to 2,500 American ground troops in Syria, which was initially set to take place in a 90-day period and to be completed in 2019. Uh, with proliferating concerns over a potential power vacuum, the U.S. announced on February 22nd, 2019, that instead of a total withdrawal, a contingency force of around 400 American troops would remain garrisoned in Syria indefinitely and that their withdrawal would be gradual and condition-based, marking a return to a policy of open-ended American military presence in the country. Keeping in mind also that we now have hard uh, evidence that uh, President Trump was actually lied to about the troop count that existed within Syria by his own generals. So yeah, there's, uh, there's the veneer of democracy 
and having some say so. But when you realize that the president of the United States can be deceived as to a troop count in a country that we have troops on the ground, boots on the ground without a declared war, and they can deceive him as to the amount of troops there and not remove them. Well, that tells you that there's someone else that actually runs this government. Does it not? I think so. This time it's a little different flavor, but the Lebanon War of 2006 was not actually US-backed, but instead it was IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. Hmm. Is there a difference though? I don't know. The 2006 Lebanon War, also called the 2006 Israel-Hezbollah War, and known in Lebanon as the July War, and in Israel as the Second Lebanon War, was a 34-day military conflict in Lebanon, northern Israel, and the Golan Heights. The principal parties were Hezbollah, paramilitary forces, and the IDF. The conflict started on July 12, 2006, and continued into, until a United Nations brokered ceasefire went into effect in the morning of August 2006, though it formally ended on September 8, 2006, when Israel lifted its naval blockade on Lebanon. Due to unprecedented Ira Iranian military support to Hezbollah before and during the war, some consider it the first round of the Iran-Israel proxy conflict rather than a continuation of the Arab-Israeli conflict, keeping in mind that the last country listed by Wes Clark was, in fact, Iran. Interesting. Now, it gets a little bit more interesting. In 2012, <sighs> this is spicy, Hezbollah names CIA spies in Lebanon. Militant group steps up campaign against U.S. intelligence agency by revealing identities of 10 undercover officers in a TV broadcast. They said it on live TV. Hezbollah has revealed the identities of CIA officers working undercover in Lebanon, a blow to agency operations in the region, and the latest salvo in an escalating spy war. So, obviously, even though this is 2012, that means that there had been spying that was occurring by the CIA within Lebanon for many years prior. The militant group made the names public in a broadcast on Friday night on a Lebanese television station, Al Manar. Using video animations, the station re recreated meetings purported to take place between CIA officers and paid informants at Starbucks and Pizza Hut outlets. The officers met with informants at locations more than once, a procedure frowned upon because it risks exposure. The disclosure comes after Hezbollah managed to partially unravel the agency's spy network in Lebanon after running a double agent against the CIA, former and current U.S. intelligence officials said. They request, requested an anonymity to discuss matters of intelligence. This is from The Guardian, back when they weren't terrible. So yeah, Lebanon has uh, not gone without intervention now has it so that's three three of our seven let's keep going this is probably the most horrific of them all in my humble opinion libya on march 19 2011 a multi-state nato-led coalition began a military intervention in libya to implement united nations security council resolution 1973 in response to events during the first libyan civil war with 10 votes in favor and five abstentions the un security council's intent was to have an immediate ceasefire in libya including an end to the current attacks against civilians which it said might constitute crimes against humanity imposing a ban on all flights in the 
country's airspace, a no-fly zone, and tightened sanctions on the Muammar Gaddafi regime and its supporters. American and British naval forces fired over 110 Tomahawk cruise missiles and imposed a naval blockade. The French Air Force, British Royal Air Force, and Royal Canadian Air Force undertook sorties across Libya. The intervention did not employ foreign ground troops, so just, just an air bombardment. The Libyan government's response to the campaign was totally ineffectual, with Gaddafi's forces not managing to shoot down a single NATO plane. It is reported that over the eight month NATO uh, over the eight months of this war, NATO members carried out seven thousand bombing sorties targeting Gaddafi's forces. Seven thousand. Yikes. Ooh, and I think we can all remember how that one ended, can we not? Hmm. Mr. Gaddafi, I won't show you the video because I'd like to keep this up on YouTube, but I will read about it. The killing of Muammar Gaddafi took place on October 20th, 2011, after the Battle of Sirte. Muammar Gaddafi, the deposed leader of Libya, was found west of Sirte after his convoys were attacked by NATO aircraft as part of the 2011 NATO military intervention in Libya. He was then captured by National Transitional Council forces and was killed shortly afterwards. The NTC initially claimed Gaddafi died from injuries sustained in a firefight when loyalist forces attempted to free him, although a graphic video of his last moments show rebel fighters beating him and one of them sodomizing him with a bayonet before he was shot several times. The killing of Gaddafi was criticized as a violation of international law. Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch called for an independent autopsy and an investigation into how Gaddafi died. Well, seeing as it's on video, I don't think that we need to wonder how that transpired. But, uh, yeah. And it didn't get much better for the people of Libya, seeing as, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton cackled about, we came, he saw, he died. <laughs> well, ha 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 ha. Open-air slave markets returned to the nation of Libya in the years following the death of Muammar Gaddafi, the assassination, really. This is not where these migrants want to be, heading back to the African continent, thanks to aid from the Italian government to reinforce Libya's Coast Guard. It's helped cut the number of migrants arriving in Italy to under 22,000 in the last three months. It's the lowest total for four years. But people trafficking networks in Libya continue to flourish because of government chaos as rival groups battle for power. These Ivorians, repatriated to the Ivory Coast from Libya, say they risk being sold into slavery. They sell Africans over there. In Libya, they sell men. Even 15-year-old Libyans are there in a car, they're armed. They'll come and kidnap you and they'll sell you for 70 to $150. And then others will resell you. As soon as you arrive in Libya, the first thing that happens is that you are taken away and sold. Our black brothers from West Africa, wherever you are from, a Malian, a Senegalese or any other nationality from the West, even an Ivorian, you are sold. And for what? $700. But these migrants will tell you that life is so hard in their home country that it's worth almost any risk to make a new start in Europe. Now with the advent of the smartphone and with Facebook and others pushing into Africa, a youngster can meet a smuggler in two seconds on a phone. Now that's, nothing is being done to challenge that. They think they're following a dream to Europe. They end up in the maw, in the grip of these rapacious smugglers. Despite increased patrols, the UN says more than 160,000 people have made it across the Mediterranean to Europe this year, about 3,000 have drowned en route. Bernard Smith, Al Jazeera. Well, 
I'm not going to go through and uh, explain all of the ways in which the CIA and the uh, U.S. State Department has intervened in Africa, creating that wave of immigrants from Africa into Europe. But needless to say, that was were some stories from some Ivory Coasters that were immigrating to Italy and were uh, risking being kidnapped and uh, sent to Libya to be traded as human slaves, which is an institution which has largely been abolished from the planet, fortunately, thank God. Uh, but thanks to Hillary Clinton and uh, the U.S. State Department, as well as NATO's intervention in Libya, they now have open-air slave markets there. I don't know if it's still active to this day. I should probably look that up. But needless to say, as of 2018, there was active open-air slave markets in Libya, and uh, that was number four of Wesley Clark's seven. Good job, U.S. intervention scions. Brilliant. Brilliant work. Next up of West Clark 7, Iran. Well, you're saying to yourself, Clint, we haven't invaded Iran. Sure, Donald Trump blew up one of their generals and almost started World War III not too long ago. Uh, but it's actually a little bit more than that. Yeah. The Iranian Green Movement, or Green Wave of Iran, also referred to as the Persian Awakening or Persian Spring by the Western media, refers to a political movement that arose after the June 12th, 09 Iranian presidential election and lasted until early 2010, in which protesters demanded the removal of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad from office. Green was initially used as a symbol of Mir Hossein Mosavi's campaign, but after the election, it became the symbol of unity and hope for those asking for annulment of what they regarded as a fraudulent election. Mir Hossein Mosavi and Mehdi Karoubi are recognized as political leaders of the Green Movement. Grand Ayatollah Hossein, Hossein Ali Motorzeri was also mentioned as spiritual leader of the movement. The Green Movement protests were a major event in Iran's modern political history, and observers claim that these protests were the largest since the Iranian Revolution of 1978-79, which was also a CIA-backed coup, mind you. While the protests started out as a peaceful, nonviolent movement, hundreds of people were arrested and several died as protests turned more violent in the following months, the movement eventually had trouble with retaining its momentum. So, it appears to me, at least, perhaps, that there was an attempt at toppling the leadership in Iran. So, uh, not to mention the countless times we came to the brink of war with Iran. It seems like every single presidency had, has had uh, <laughs> at least brief attempts at, uh, at starting a hot war with the Iranians. Uh, we've had, fortunately, for many years, we had a, uh, a treaty that they had agreed to that would allow us to inspect or allow us you know, U.S. or U.N. inspectors to come in and, and make sure that they weren't develop, developing a nuclear weapon. And in my humble opinion, that is the only reason we did not have a hot war as the Donald Rumsfeld, George W. Bush cabal of neoconservatives would have preferred because the Iranians smartly opted into that deal to try and prevent the bullshit narrative of, well, we have to invade because they are in fact developing a nuclear bomb, which as uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has lied about forever, decades even, not just him, but other Israeli leadership, that they are within days, months, weeks, years, whatever, of creating and having a functioning nuclear weapon. Uh, this has been Israel's cry, plea 
for since the 80s. No bullshit. You can look it up. Just over and over again. Same same story. They're six months away. They're 30 days away. They're six, 60 days away. It's never been true. They haven't had one. They don't appear to be anywhere near having one. Um, but that's been the narrative. So, Ren, number five. Fortunately, by a miracle, we have not invaded Iran so far. But, as you've just now seen, it is not without much intervention that does not constitute an invasion. So, let's get to number six, Somalia. Now, Somalia has been in a civil war for about 30 years straight now. So, this is, it's very hard to identify, you know, where the U.S. is involved, where it's naturally occurring. However, 2006 through 7, uh, Al-Shabaab started to once again take over uh, or have a civil conflict where they attempted to take over the government. And uh, the o Obama administration throughout his tenure uh, drone bombed them mercilessly. And all the way up until the Trump administration, and then he stopped it. In the last few months of his presidency, they finally stopped bombing Somalia. And then in the very first month of Biden's administration, they began bombing it again. So Somalia, you have also been toppled. I mean, kind of. You've been toppled for 30 years straight, it seems like. So that one isn't particularly uh, novel, seeing as they've had nonstop conflict for 30 straight years. However, the fact that, uh, you know, every president since Wesley Clark said that has been bombing Somalia tells me, yeah, that one, uh, that gets checked off the list as well. It does. Number seven. Can you believe it? We're to the end of the list already. Hasn't it been fun? Not for the people of those other nations. It sure hasn't. <laughs> Number seven, Sudan. A brief history of CIA's dirty war in South Sudan from Tesfa News. With the CIA's dirty war in South Sudan winding down, it's time to take a brief but comprehensive look at the origins and history of this most secret of Pax Americana crimes in Africa. This was written in 2019, by the way. It is in the national interest of the USA to deprive China of access to African energy resources, with the Sudanese oil fields being the only Chinese owned and operated in Africa. It was no coincidence that one of the first targets of the rebellion in South Sudan was the Chinese oil fields. It has been U.S. first China and South Sudan from the start. To, to begin this history, we must go back to the origins of the South Sudan peace process that developed in 04. This new breakthrough came about following the East Sudan uprising and subsequent intervention in Sudan by the Eritrean military in support of the Beha and Rashida People's Movement in 2003. So that was happening right as Wesley Clark was talking. Eritrean commandos cut the Port Sudan-Khartoum Highway, the lifeline for 25 million residents of Sudan's capital. For two weeks, the Sudanese army counterattacked and ended up utterly defeated by the Eritrean special forces. Facing critical food and fuel shortages, the Sudanese officer corps that was then the base of support for the recently deposed Omar al-Bashir capitulated and as part of the peace deal agreed to begin good faith negotiations with the various Sudanese resistance groups both east, south, and even supposedly in the west. This resulted in John Gurang, head of the Sudanese People's Liberation Movement and the president of Sudan, Omar al-Bashir, sitting down together to sign a comprehensive peace deal in Asmara, Eritrea, late in 04. In December of 2004, we flew into Asmara, Eritrea and checked into the old Imperial Hotel, the Ambrosoria, and found ourselves sharing breakfast with senior leaders of the SPLM. We had a satellite dish back in the U.S. with Eritrean TV, so we had seen our breakfast mates on the news covering the recently signed peace deal in Asmara. 
They were all in high spirits, still excited about the prospect for peace in Sudan. Later, after returning home to the USA in 2015, we heard of a new peace deal, this time being signed in Navaisha in Kenya. And this time the deal was brokered by the USA. The only real difference between the 04 Asmara agreement and the 05 Kenya deal was the inclusion of a clause calling for a referendum on independence for South Sudan. The USA forced Bashir and Garang to accept this independence referendum after forcing a new peace negotiation and eventual deal in Kenya away from the Eritrean mediation efforts. Carrot and the stick, inducements and threats by the world superpower forced Garang and Bashir to accept the dismemberment of Sudan and created the conditions for one of the most brutal civil wars in African history. This was the doings of the USA from the get-go. After signing the peace deal, John Garang, as head of the Sudanese People's Liberation Movement, held his first public rally in Khartoum and drew a million people or more, three times the largest crowd Bashir had ever had. There he made a fateful speech. John Garang made it clear that he was strongly against independence for South Sudan, instead calling on his fellow Sudanese in the north to help elect him president to build a new Sudan based on equal rights and justice for all Sudanese. Garang stated his intent to be politically independent from the Western powers instead of instead looking to China, already in the oil business in Sudan, to develop Sudan's economy. Sudan as a whole is the largest and potentially richest country in Africa, and for the USA to lose Sudan to China wasn't acceptable to Pax Americana. John Garang was dead two weeks later in a mysterious helicopter crash, and with him died a unified Sudan. Within a few years, a referendum was held for independence for South Sudan, and voila, it was a done deal. The irony is that John Garang, who was vehemently against independence for South Sudan, is now proclaimed the father of the South Sudanese independent state. In 09, my old friend Alexander Cockburn contacted me asking for a story about what was going on vis-a-vis -vis Sudan, South Sudan. I had been living next door in Eritrea for the past few years, and I responded with storm clouds over South Sudan, which Alex and Jeffrey St. Clair published on their website, Counterpunch, where I predicted the upcoming Holocaust in the world's newest independent country. I only wish, I only wish my words had not come true. I was repeatedly forced to continue exposing the CIA's dirty war in South Sudan over the next few years with titles like U.S. vs. China in South Sudan, the CIA's dirty war in South Sudan, amongst others in an attempt to shine the light of day on this most dirty and secret CIA covert war. I'm not exaggerating when I call the civil war in South Sudan the most secret major covert military operation by the CIA in the agency's history. The proof of this is the fact that not a single writer other than myself has made this charge. This might be explained by the lengths prominent Western journalists have attempted to point the blame away from the agency and instead at the South Sudanese people themselves. It's been horrific first-hand stories by award-winning progressive journalists like Nick Terse that painted this dirty war as black-on-black -black African tribal violence at its worst. When I pointed out to Nick Terse that the rebels were being paid $300 a month salaries, Mr. Terse denied the accuracy of my claim. In exchange on Twitter, he said that the rebels were making maybe $300 a year, if that, so no need to explain the $6 million a month it would take to pay 20,000 rebel combatant salaries. The problem with Mr. Terse's assertion is that former South Sudanese rebel fighters have confirmed being paid $300 a month when they were under arms. In South Sudan, young men join the army because it's the only way to get enough money to feed your family not out of patriotic zeal. When the money periodically dried up, usually stolen by the rebel generals, the soldiers start to leave, as my sources had experienced. 
Do the math. 20,000 rebels paid $300 a month times six years plus food, fuel, and ammo, and you come out with over 500 million and counting. Honestly, now, who has a history of coming up with that amount of cash entirely secret for that long but the CIA? Must we be reminded of the CIA's dirty war in Angola and Mozambique in support of South African apartheid back in the 1970s and 80s? Show me the money, right? How come no one in the international media has ever asked this question? The rebels have no visible means of support. Where could they be getting their funds from? The story remains the best kept secret dirty war the CIA has ever operated. Until the Chinese brought in a couple thousand armed peacekeepers to protect their oil fields, the CIA operation was successful, shutting down temporarily Chinese oil production in South Sudan. But more importantly, it pretty much shut down Chinese expansion in South Sudan. That is what this dirty war was all about, preventing China from gaining a major foothold in Africa's oil fields. Show me the money. Show me the only party that benefits from this war. That's right. The only party to benefit from this brutal foreign-funded African Holocaust has been Pax Americana, the U.S. of A, by shutting down Chinese oil production and expansion in South Sudan. All right. I think you get the point. I uh, also have an article that's more modern uh, from the New York Times, How U.S. Efforts to Guide Sudan to Democracy Ended in War. Critics say the Biden administration and its partners were naive about the intentions of two rival generals and failed to empower civilian leaders. So it's now finally being covered by major outlets in the U.S., but uh, and even in that, it describes it as a failure. Uh, but I think I think I've made my case. General Wesley Clark told the truth. There was seven nations on that list from Donald Rumsfeld. Seven nations in five years. And just as the government is so prone to do, it took them 20. It took them 20 to do what they plan to do in seven, or in five, rather. Uh, but not a single country on that list has not had either U.S. State Department, CIA, or direct military intervention over the following 20 years. And the only one that hasn't really been toppled or just left in complete disarray is Iran, barely. Um, but all the others had either civil wars or color revolutions or active U.S. bombing campaigns or U.S. outright intervention. So, yeah. Whoever told Wesley Clark that, which he has been unwilling to say, uh, it was the truth. It was the truth that all the way back in 2001... I think it was 2001. Maybe you said it was 02. But regardless, within a month, I think I think he said it was a month. It was like three weeks after 9-11. They had already had this planned out. And the, the real reason that I think this story is so important and that it's so profound is that every time there's a new impetus for war, a new propagandistic push for U.S. intervention, State Department intervention, uh, aid, whatever. There's always a new narrative that's delivered to the American people through our media, media apparatchiks, where they make the case that this is important and this is new and this demands that the U.S. voter, the voting populace, not only should support it, but should feel good about supporting intervention in these nations. And the reason I wanted to really hammer this point home and prove out that Wesley Clark 7 is a real, a real deal tale of how our actual government functions is that those narratives are ex post facto, they're nonsense. They don't have any bearing 
on what countries we intervene in, like zero. They have plans on what nations they want to conquer or topple or, uh, you know, install a, a more beneficial leadership into, and then they, they concoct, they craft a narrative to justify their plans after the fact. The plans are already laid out. The justification comes later. And it doesn't take much to create that justification because you have a State Department that goes around sowing discord and discontent and civil strife and civil wars in so many nations that any time that occurs, well, then there you go. Now they have justification if they want it. Now they don't always. Sometimes there will be civil conflict in these nations and they will do nothing about it because it's not in their plans. They could care less about all of these nations, all of them, literally all of them. They don't care about any of them. They don't care about the people in them. They care about their plans, their conquest, their control over resources or political infrastructure or pipelines or military strategic needs. That's the reason. It has nothing to do with humanitarianism, okay? Nothing. Because if it did, you wouldn't have these same people in power to this very day that look back on their track record of intervention in these nations and say, oh, wow, that whole effort in Syria, that didn't go so hot. The people have suffered terribly. How about Libya? How'd that work out? That evil dictator Gaddafi got toppled and murdered brutally in the streets. Did it get better for the Libyan people or did it end up being an anarchic hell? Not the good kind of anarchy, the bad kind, the really, really bad kind with warring warlords, essentially. You know the answer. It didn't end up very well for those people. And none of these nations, people, have benefited from U.S. State Department intervention in any way I can imagine. I mean, I'm sure sometimes there's food aid that gets to the people and they're appreciative of that. But aside from that, my God, what a, what a vicious, brutal, blood-soaked track record the United States government has in terms of helping these people. Scare quotes on the helping part. It's sad. It's sad. And it's done with our taxpayer dollars. Pisses me off, if I'm being totally honest. Makes me not just angry, but sad. Really sad. And uh, I've been putting this this piece together for a couple of days now because I, I wanted to you know, get the story right for you guys. You could understand it as well as possible. But this is the same, the same kind of larger story that if you break it down into chunks, you can see so much of it in Ukraine. You can see that there was all of this lead up that I've, if you want to get some of the lead up to it and some of the, the backdrop, if you're totally in the dark, I did an episode. It's one of the few episodes I left up on YouTube when I totally purged my channel because I couldn't risk any further strikes, but it's called the war they wanted. And you have John McCain and Lindsey Graham in 2017 talking about how they were going to, or excuse me, 2000, 
I think it was 16, maybe it was 17, I don't know, um, where they were talking about how next year would be the war of, or the year of offense. And they're, they're on the ground in Ukraine talking to U- Ukrainian military, to troops. And they're saying the year of offense. And yet it takes over four years, five years, I think, uh, from that point until Vladimir Putin actually invades, like really invades. I'm not talking about Crimea where it's a coup de main where they just take over Crimea without any fighting, without hardly any bloodshed. I think one or two people died. It was like nothing because no one fought because they understood that's their port. That's where their Navy functions. So no one expected, no one expected anything else but the Russians to control it. But they don't invade for, from 2014 after they take Crimea, they don't invade until 2022. Uh, yeah, 22, February of 22. So eight years, eight years. And in that period, you have the Maidan revolution, which is actually funded by a huge amount, millions and millions of dollars from the U.S. State Department. You have Victoria Nuland on the ground there. Um, yeah, I mean, that, the National Endowment for Democracy, you know, George Soros' involvement. You have all of these uh state-sponsored entities, government-sponsored entities, GSEs, that are are essentially fomenting that revolution. And it's the same exact story in all of these countries that I just listed off, that Wesley Clark listed off in 2003. This is how they do it now. It's not always just like, okay, we're going to invade. It's not Iraq. You don't get shock and awe in all these countries, so it's not always so obvious. But when you have, you know, these sick fucking bastards that are are plotting that are planning seven countries that they intend to topple within five years what does it tell you man does it tell you that they have the interest of those people in mind at all it tells me the complete opposite it tells me they have zero concern for those people and for the record they have zero absolutely zero concern for democracy the thing that they claim, they allege, we are risking World War III to defend in Ukraine. They don't care. They don't care about the leadership in those nations. Wesley Clark didn't say, well, unless, you know, there's a new democratically elected person in, in Sudan, maybe we won't. They don't say that. They say seven nations in the next five years. It has nothing to do with the leadership. It has nothing to do with anything other than this is their geopolitical interest. This is their plan of attack to have a better angle on conquest and control over the entire globe. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me that's not exactly what this proves. That all of the narratives have nothing to do with it. Look at Iraq. Look at Iraq and Afghanistan. Iraq in particular. There's no reason for the invasion of Iraq after 9-11. Zero reason for it. Provably, zero reason. But they get an impetus. They get a justification with the attacks on 9-11. And they use that moment to do what George Bush wanted to do on behalf of his father, which is topple Saddam. That's what it was about. It wasn't about helping the Iraqis. It wasn't about WMDs. It was, 
we have seven nations that we're going to topple over the next five years, and you're first up, bud. Hope you're ready. That's actually how our military functions. That's actually how our government broadly functions. And if you think that our elections are significantly different from how they view those other nations and their people's decision-making when it comes to voting, you got another, uh, you got another thing coming. I don't think they care about our decision-making any more than they do the Sudanese people or the Somalis or the Iranians or the Libyans. The list goes on and on. The Iraqis, they don't care about their take on who they want to control. They don't, they don't, they don't believe in any of this. They don't believe in any of it. I hope I'm not hammering this point too hard, but does this not prove it? They don't believe in any of it. None of it. It's a total lie. It's a veneer. It's a, it's a justification to just do what they want for their own benefit not yours for their own benefit not ours evil evil people and by that time we were bombing in afghanistan i said are we still going to war with iraq and he said oh it's worse than that he said he reached over on his desk he picked up a piece of paper and he said i just he said i just got this down from upstairs meaning the secretary of defense office today and he said this is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. There you have it. Thank you, General Wesley Clark, for telling the truth. It has been enlightening, deeply so. And if we had a media in this country, that would have been one of the most outrageous disclosures from a four-star general and presidential candidate ever that would have had wall-to-wall -wall coverage for years you would have had congressional investigations into it if they weren't in on it as well but they are tells you a lot tells you a hell of a lot about how this country actually functions about how democracy functions it doesn't it doesn't work because we don't have it and we haven't had it for God knows how long. But man, that is, that is a huge heaping dose of truth, is it not? Whew. Wild. Really, it really, like, I've, I've known this clip thanks to No Agenda Podcast and thanks to Adam Curry. Uh, I've known about this clip for years, but I had never gone through and researched all of the interventions in those seven nations to actually see how true it was. And once I was done, I was like, oh my God, everything I thought about this country is really built on lies, you know? And it's funny because we all kind of knew that with the Iraq invasion, especially the libertarian community, we knew that because we knew the WMDs were lies and we knew that they had nothing to do with 9-11. Um, but man, when you see all of these other countries that were on that list and they also had, you know, CIA or State Department or direct military intervention, it's like, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, we are up against it. 
Oh my God. If you found this insightful, please share it. First off. Second off, hit the like button. Third off, hit the subscribe button. And fourth off, make sure you tell your family and your friends and everybody else. And if you want to support my work, go to libertylockdown.locals.com. Uh, thank you so much for the continued support. It means the world to me. Uh, only thing that keeps me <laughs> from going totally crazy is the fact that you guys actually listen to what I have to say and appreciate it. So as always, I will catch you soon. Love you guys. We're out of peace. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go?